Teaching to One, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very busy. How's your week going so far? Also busy. Yeah. I need to write a quiz. It's that time of year. <laughs> well, you're about to launch into testing, aren't you? The yeah. Te- that testing uh, time of year. Thou mayst to be behold. week after next is testing. Starts testing, I should say. So it's, uh, it's, it's crunch the, time, y'all. It's on the horizon. Okay. That's all I have to say about that. That's all? That's it? That's all you want I, to say about No, I just... I mean, it's like a taboo to ask teachers about testing. That's like no. asking a doctoral student... Uh, how their thesis is going right probably you just, you just don't talk about it you acknowledge it it's a huge reality you, you just don't talk about it you acknowledge that it's part of your life i think we just like know it's coming right it's going to happen so i think we can or can't do about it the inevitable yeah so it's just after testing my classroom does change a little bit mm-hmm. which i love mm-hmm. but otherwise mm, i'm good okay i i'm very fortunate to teach the kids i teach I do my best, and they do their best, and we'll wake up. You do the well next with, with the testing, the testing bit. I some years, you have yeah. Good, you have good scores. Yeah, we'll see. It's a, I think that's what we don't talk about. I think it's like a no no in baseball. Whoops. Yeah, you know how you don't talk about a no no because they're gonna throw a hit. It's like Bruno. We also don't talk about Bruno. Yeah, we don't talk about that. So I think we should just pretend you never said Test that my kids do well in testing because I okay. don't. Want, yeah. Okay. Uh, I withdraw the statement. No, I'm just kidding. I appreciate you saying that. I work hard, you know, but yeah, you also do. my classroom solar system does not revolve around testing. That's good. If that makes sense. I feel like that's healthy. I try. And wise. But now I'm like, oh, I definitely didn't do enough. You know, because like now, like this is when it hits me that it's so close. Yeah. And then I'm like, should it have been the center of my solar system? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. This was something like Mars or maybe Jupiter, but maybe it should have been the sun. Probably much close. Yeah, we should have made sun. it. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's okay. It's All coming. Right. Well, you're prepared. You'll do well. Yeah, they're Don't gonna worry. be fine. My school doesn't have an Easter break, and I'm honestly more mad about that than I am about no testing. spring break whatsoever. All my friends are in spring break right now. Yeah, all my friends. Everyone they're keeps posting asking on Instagram. You, When's your spring break? And you're like, we don't have one. And they're like, what? I lose my number. People are baffled by that. I am baffled. It by seems that. to be more universal. Yeah, I mean, it kind of surprised me because it seems to be pretty universal among our educator friends uh, to have a spring break and you do not and they're always just completely confused by that yeah and they're like oh well if it's not this week then when and i'm like never first i don't (laughs) know what to tell you my spring break happens in the summer i get two days off at easter yeah Yeah, i'm a little i'm a little salty because all my friends are doing fun stuff and well we're here Uh uh-huh so it's spring well false spring Fall spring in yeah, Ohio. It, it got what was it, nineteen degrees on Saturday or something like that. Yeah, Sunday. and like last week was seventy, mm-hmm. and it's going to be back to seventy like tomorrow. So you know. So my allergies are not great. Yeah, mine either. <laughs> I'm just going through it in my head because we've hit all. It snowed. Also, we totally forgot. Oh that. yeah, we and drove home in a snowstorm this past weekend. They had like it accumulated here in Ohio. We were in D.C. We went to D.C. After all of that discussion of the Smithsonian's, we just decided that we had to go to had to go see him, and we got to see the cherry blossoms. We did. We saw the cherry blossoms, and in DC. that 
we've definitely talked about in episodes before. Mm-hmm. Actually, throwback to two years ago, when I proudly announced on this podcast that we were going to go see the cherry blossoms. <laughs> and then we didn't. And then immediately COVID hit and ruined everything. So two years later, COVID can't hold me back. Can't stop, won't stop. We finally saw them. We almost got defeated by the cold, blowy weather, but we, and we the did go see them. Yeah, in the parking. It's we a walked, mass of humanity down there. We walked from our car to the Jefferson. Oh my gosh. We and we said the Jeffersonian. Yeah, the Because we've been watching so much Bones. We have. We walked to the Jefferson. Jefferson? <laughs> I almost did it again. We walked to Jefferson. Yes. Which is on the basin, which is one of the best views, everyone says, of mm-hmm. the cherry blossoms. Mm-hmm. Walked back to our car, and we had walked two miles. Yeah. And we saw nothing else. Yeah. That was it. My ears got really cold. You didn't have a coat, because we were all just like, oh, it's going to be nice. The weather's going to be great. It's spring. Here we are. The cherry blossoms are blooming. I feel like when I looked at DC's weather, it was like 50. Uh, DC is a, is a fickle, fickle woman. The swamp. A fickle swamp woman. Fickle swamp. That's exactly how I feel. She's, <laughs> she's a fickle swamp woman. Um, woman. They were so beautiful. So small, the flowers, not the trees. The trees yeah. are beautiful. They're tiny. You didn't know that they were that tiny? I thought the cherry blossoms, the flower, were just larger. Mm. They're very small. Mm-hmm. Very fragile little things. They're little wee, little wee babes. Yeah, it was just beautiful. I would definitely suggest once to do that. Once in your life. You probably don't need to do it again. Probably only once. That's all that like, is required. We would do it again if we were just there. I don't oh, yeah. think we would travel specifically. If we didn't have to park a car, I, I would totally do it again if we didn't oh. have to park a car. Oh, if we didn't have to park a car, I'd go all the time because it was that cool. We had a good time, though. It yeah. was pretty. It's definitely worth it. And the Washington Nationals, the baseball team, mm-hmm. they're one of the, is it, I think it's called like the City Connect or something like that. It's the special Nike jerseys each season. Nike picks a random like six or so teams and does a special city version of their jersey. And Nike chose Washington this year. Oh, that's cool. And their jerseys are all gray, and they have, like, a darker gray pattern of the cherry blossoms. And they say, like, WSH on them, and then they have pink cherry blossoms blowing off of them. And their hat has cherry blossoms blowing off of a big W on their head. And they have a cherry blossom tree on the side. They're so cool. And their NBA team has a cherry blossom jersey as well. So it's kind of cool right now. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. You want to get into uh, uh, what we're what we're covering this week? I would say that this is a you-centric episode in that out of the two of us, you would definitely be who I would call the athlete and not, okay. not me so much. Thank you. That might surprise the listeners that I am not in any way athletic, but... If they've never met us... <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, you I like you enjoy sports though. Oh yeah, I enjoy You're I enjoy active. physical activity. Yeah. I enjoy, you know, softball was was my jam growing yeah. up. I'll talk a little bit later about my uh troubled interaction with high school athletics uh-huh. especially. Yeah. But we're going to be talking about school athletics and yeah. high school sports mainly this episode. Just kind of uh, how we got to where we are today. How we balance, we meaning how students balance social life and school and athletic activity and uh, what is the word? (laughs) What is the word for sports that is not rehearsal? Practice. Practice. There we go. Practice. Yeah, we go to, we go to practice. We go to sports rehearsal. sometimes we go to (laughs) softball rehearsal. I personally went to sports rehearsals (laughs) when I played sports. I didn't go to practice. I went to sports rehearsal. What is the sports equivalent for rehearsal? Uh, My brain just. That's a scrimmage. (laughs) (laughs) 
Who? That's no, that's like a dress rehearsal. Oh, that's a excuse yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Sorry. Uh, like or like a tech rehearsal. Maybe. That's a run. Hey, okay. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of you translating my theater and music words into sports words. But yeah, so we're going to talk about athletics in the context of student life and schools. And, and just their evolution of them. Yeah. And how we got to where we are today. Sure. So you took the lead on research on this one because I wouldn't have even known where to start. So do you want to do you want to kick us off and give us a little bit of uh, a backstory and a history? Yeah, here? I was pretty overwhelmed. There are a lot of different directions this can go. Well, it's kind of broad. It is broad, but it also really quickly just falls into like gym class. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of where Which we already did. By right. The way. We covered some of the basics of this in way, 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 way back in episode seven, Health and Fitness. Mm-hmm. We talked about gym programs and intramurals and intra, intra-school sports and stuff back in that episode. But now we're talking kind of specifically about modern sports programs and how they came to be what they are. Sure. Take it away. Okay. We're going to go back to 1852. Oh, 1852. We're going pre-Civil War. That's specific. In Massachusetts. Okay. And so they are the first state to pass a compulsory education law. Yes. Yes, they are. Which is requiring... We've talked about that, too. Yeah. So yeah. that starts in 1852. Mm-hmm. Okay. By 1918, every state had followed suit and also had passed a compulsory education law. Yes. Okay. So and once you once you have student butts in seats, then it's like, okay, well, how do we siphon off some of this excess now energy? What? How, how do we deal with their attention deficits? So the first thing... Ah, sports. That, exactly. <laughs> so the first thing that schools and communities, cities, wherever, right, are faced with is establishing parks and playgrounds. So they need a safe public place for kids to play, mm-hmm. whatever that might look like in your area. Makes sense. So from there, though, of course, that's kind of where we start to see the organization of sports. So this is a more structured... Yeah, leagues and teams. More and, than just playground games. Right, protocols and rules and right. oversight. Yeah. So October 12th, 1900, the Wall School of Honey Grove Honey played St. Matthew's Grammar School of Dallas in football. Oh, they won five zero. I'm not Wait, sure what? how that works. Okay, <laughs> okay. I don't know much about sports, yep. but I know that a score of five to nothing in what football would like be a, a little weird. Did they kick a field goal? I, okay, anyways, who even knows? Really? So this is a milestone. This is like in Texas. This is, you're like asking like baseball if it were played by pickleball rules, kind of like that's the <laughs> probably that's what we're doing. This here. is like leather helmets. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like so they look more like rugby players than mm-hmm. than NFL players. Yeah. Okay. So okay. this event is a milestone in Texas history because it's the first recorded football game between two high school teams. Mm. So until then, American boys were just playing basically pickup games where they would just crush each other. So kind of like in Tramirals, maybe a little less formal than It would have just been neighborhood kids. Oh, okay. You're saying you're saying this is like the first kind of real school led Yeah, these are high school teams who have actual football teams. Got it. Like high schools who have football teams who actually compete. Cool. So it's much more, you know what I mean? You said that was in 1900. October of 1900. Wow. Sometimes I forget how new all of this stuff is because they they feel like such institutions. High school football growing up felt like it had been around for ages because that's what the whole entire town, it all revolved around high school football. Friday nights, that's a thing. Yeah. So it's funny to... To discover that it's yeah. so, 120 years old, yeah. at most. So these schools are the first to have the first official football game. And that's okay. in Texas. So Texas is a football capital, I would say, for is high Friday schools. Friday Night Lights, is mm-hmm. that set in Texas? Yep. What 
basically was happening, though, in these outside of school games was they were just like brawls, basically. <laughs> right. So schools glorified fist fights. Yeah. Okay. So schools only got involved basically to contain that madness. To retain students teeth. Uh, it, it was more just to harness the energy, I would say. So this Lower trend, dental bills, right. harness mm. energy. Okay. 1900 okay. other dental bills. Uh, I'm sure there okay. are. Somebody, somebody's got to be profiting off of these <laughs> sure. unregulated high school boys punching each other in the face. Okay. So this trend starts in elite private schools and then it spreads to the masses. So in New York City, they had their inaugural public schools athletic league in 1903. Wow. So they had a track and field spectacular for a thousand boys at Madison Square Garden the day after Christmas. (laughs) How cool. The day after Christmas. I know. Imagine how much fun that would be to see Madison Square Garden with a thousand high school boys. I just love that. Track and field? In December. Okay. And Madison Square Garden, we keep talking about watching the Gilded Age on this podcast, but the very first iteration of Madison Square Garden would have been close to this time. It was the late 1800s. Right? Didn't mm-hmm. we just learn that mm-hmm. on, our, on our? I just took a big drink of wine. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> so, no, we just carry we just, on. This is your time. <laughs> so, okay, drinking wine. I'm drinking scotch as usual, just to just to clue everyone. It very important part of how this podcast is made. But anyway, okay, so that's so that really was cool. in 1903. Very cool. So by 1910, 17 other cities had also formed similar organizations. During this, though, the U.S. is actually educating its children for more years than most other countries. And this is while also admitting this huge surge of immigrants, especially if we're talking about New York City. Absolutely. This is where it gets a little iffy. Uh-oh. So the ruling elite, which is already a bad start for this The sentence, ruling elite. The ruling elite feared that all of this schooling was going to make the... This is a quote, okay, that the Anglo-Saxon boys soft and weak <laughs> in contrast to their brawny, newly immigrated peers... We're going to make snowflakes in America. So much so that Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. warned that cities were being overrun with stiff-jointed, soft-muscled, paste-complexioned youth. Paste-complexioned. Okay. Okay, so Oliver Wendell Holmes, the poet, is very worried about Elmer's glue-looking boys boys in America, apparently. Gosh, we... If you're interested in a history of toxic masculinity, look no further. Look no further than the quotes of Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. I thought I liked him. The Fireside Poets? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure he wrote some interesting poems. Like, he's a friend of Emerson. Yeah, those guys. His son being a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. He's very worried about boys being pasty. Right. Well, he should have also worried about the girls being pasty. Can can confirm. No. Can attest that we also can be pasty. I'll tell all of I, I, I mean, If there were a word to describe me, a, a hyphenated adjective, paste complexioned would be it. Would that? It's me. That's okay. me. Okay. Anyway, so, carry on. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. is concerned. So. Uh, about our pasty, stiff-jointed youth. Yes. And just their general just not being... I think I'm going to switch to saying paste complexioned when people say, instead of saying pasty, because pasty is just like a boring, quick Twitter word, but paste complexioned really has a... Well, on Twitter, though... Has a ring. Letters matter. Yeah, the number of characters, but but I I would spend characters to say paste complexioned. To make your point. It's just a fun phrase. Okay. So the thought was that sports would protect boys' masculinity and distract them from vices. Oh, okay. Like, they were worried about feelings. 
Mm, gambling. <laughs> oh, okay. And prostitution. Oh, okay. Feelings of a so, sort. <laughs> yeah. So, muscular Christianity, which was fashionable during the Victorian <laughs> era, prescribes sports as a sort of moral vaccine against the tumult of rapid economic growth. Hold on. And here's a quote. Hold on. Hold on. Muscular Muscular mm-hmm. Christianity. I'm going to include all of these citations in the. Isn't that a C.S. Lewis story? Muscular Christianity. It's my worst nightmare. <laughs> so, Theodore Roosevelt says in an essay called The American Boy in 1900 quote, In life as in a football game, the principle to follow is hit the line hard, don't foul, and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. <laughs> okay? We're oh, very concerned man. about this. So, jumping ahead. I feel like. After this episode, we're going to need to revisit a psychology episode. Just, just we'll to, go back to Freud. Just to fix all of the, <laughs> the problems that we're creating by so, this episode. Yeah, in the 1920s to the 40s, so we have three decades of growth. The depression has come along, and the Great Depression actually is what decimated publicly financed youth sports organizations. Makes sense. So what we see though is that these areas that created leagues that cost money, they were in more affluent areas, which left out those who were of a lower socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. So the people who could afford to keep playing sports did, essentially. That sounds familiar. And those who couldn't, didn't. You know what I mean? Like Because then these leagues started popping up. That sounds like club way... sports now. That's what that sounds like. Yeah, me. and the only way that they could survive was to be financed, right? Because the Great Depression got rid of a lot of those opportunities. So then when you consider, okay, if you're wealthy enough to be paying for your kid to just play a sport on the side and the, you know what I mean? Like during yeah. the Great Depression and leading into World War II, it's a very specific group. From the 40s to the 60s, United States sees the pay-to-play leagues grow in popularity. They've yep. engulfed the country. There you go. That's club sports, basically. And educators are worried that emphasizing sports in elementary schools will create too much stratification between those with talent and those without. Can't confirm. Yeah. As a person without. I wouldn't say that about you. In elementary school? Absolutely no talent. You did collect a bunch of rocks and give them to a teacher Shh. once. Okay. We don't need to tell the listeners so, that story. By the 60s. That's a secret story. By the 60s, this attitude blossomed into this full-blown movement around self-esteem. And so we still see this okay, the today. Attitude, wait, wait, wait. The attitude of we can't have elementary school kids playing sports because that will make people too like socially stratified. Basically, the push of this was not to have interscholastic sports until middle school. Okay. So we see them waiting longer to start doing school-sanctioned sports like this in an effort to not bring any... Hyper competitive. Like, I I just feel like introducing them at that young of an age isn't productive, anyways. I would agree with that. So I, I think, would even think that middle school is a little bit too young for some. For some, we have students who don't start playing sports until high school. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but mm-hmm. I also see the size of a freshman boy is on a football team compared sure. to a senior. So I just, uh, yeah, but I, uh, just specifically with like social development, I feel like definitely keeping school sports schools versus other schools in elementary school. I feel like that would be. Whew, that'd be a bit much. And it's yeah. even a bit much in middle school sometimes. Because yeah. the social development just kind of can tend to lag the physical development yeah. in that age range. So. so that's the push of the 40s through the 60s, basically. Wow. Okay. In 1972, this all changes. Because up until this point, all of these organized sports had one thing in common. They were only catering to boys, of course. 
Surprise, surprise. So Title IX comes along in 1972 and that changes everything. So by the numbers before Title IX, one in every 27 girls played sports. Ooh. By 2016, it's two in five. Wow. And that's according to the Women's Sports Foundation. Title IX basically says something like, if you offer a program for men, you better offer the same opportunity for women. Or equal. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like, so in the case of most high schools, we don't offer girls baseball, we offer softball. Right. So it's Equivalent. just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the number of girls, this is data from May of 2020, but the number of girls playing high school sports is up over 990% since then. Jeez. Since Title IX and all of that. Well, so, go figure. If you provide opportunities for women to play sports, they will play sports. Right. It's a strange... Essentially, though, since then, there hasn't been any huge reform that affects it. We've just seen since then the growing of club teams. We've seen the evolution of high schools into more and more athletic opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so there's just no... There's no further like court ruling or something. You yeah, and I mean no big like development since then it's just been the advancement of sort of what Title IX laid as the foundation and then schools yeah. just sort of growing and molding around that. I would say we're definitely still dealing with the implications of Title IX programming, uh, yeah, programming in school sports because March Madness is a really good example because it's a very public example of the the feelings of school sports and serving women particularly. March Madness, the difference between yeah. The swag. Men's stuff having to do with the NCAA tournament there and women's stuff having to do with NCAA basketball. If you're interested in how women's sports programs are still fighting to catch up and just, they just want equal treatment to the men's programs, yeah. just go and do a very cursory Google search on March Madness tournament and how women's basketball has been fighting for... And if not just that, to be on the same page as the men's basketball programs, I guess I would say. And if not, we're not that, there yet. Just looking at the U.S. women's national team recent soccer, court. yes, yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's not in the context of school sports, but professional women's soccer has been a very big example of women athletes fighting for parity mm -hmm. to men's teams. So yeah. anyway, yeah. So that's kind of the history of it. So that brings us up to currently. We are situated in central Ohio, and so I just found some data from the Ohio High School Athletic Association for the 2021-22 school year, since this year they don't have all the data yet, obviously. The rules of athletic eligibility for the OHSAA is that all high school students must be enrolled in and earn passing grades in a minimum of five one-credit classes or the equivalent. That means that all of our athletes in the high school have to have at least five one period or one credit classes or the equivalent to that mm -hmm. so you can't come to school and just take two classes and be done and just you have to basically be, be there for the purposes you sports. have to be full-time the ohsaa yeah, has no minimum grade point average but it is a local option for school districts so essentially what that does is help the ohsaa not have a say in like a weighted grade which some schools still do right, which right, is right. a five-point scale instead of a four-point scale but it also then, in order to be passing, right, five credits, you're already looking at a certain GPA anyways. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably okay that the OHSA hasn't made a blanket GPA just because there are so many certain, you know what I mean? I think if they were to do that, they'd run into a lot of problems because a GPA in one right. district doesn't mean the same thing as a GPA in another district, like what you just said. Yeah. So, yeah, so all sense. athletes right now in Ohio have to be in good standing, essentially. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so you can't be failing a class and be in a school sport. Uh, you can in Ohio because you could be in six classes. Oh, or, okay. like it's just the credits okay. that matter. So you could be failing, but only in maybe like if you're taking seven classes, sure. you could only be failing in two of them. Exactly. Okay. Right. And so for us right now, we're approaching the end of a nine weeks. So this is where we see these things really start to come into play mm-hmm. because this is an indicator. This is when the students start emailing you, hey, can I have extra credit for this, this, and this? That's all of them. That's not just the athletes. Okay. So by the numbers, though, the schools are volunteer. They kind of have to be if they want to perform. What does and, that mean? Well, schools don't have to be a member of the OHSAA. The Ohio High School Athletic Yeah, you don't have to be, but if you want to compete and have varsity teams you is this have kind to of be. like a basically a big like umbrella league is that kind of what it's like for all the sports? ohsa is not a league well the, it's not a league in in that sense but it's, it's like an umbrella organization for all they're the governing body yeah of high school sports so if you want to have standards for inter-school sports yeah events. so ohsa teams can only play other ohsa teams or the equivalent of another state gotcha so that's actually was in the news last fall because there was a fake high school football team playing and they didn't actually have the accreditation. Was that in Ohio? Yes. Wow. I remember that story. So it does happen, but that's why they say... It was football, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was football because that's such a big deal. There was basically like on paper only school... Yes. That existed to allow. They had like a, bunch a PO of boys box and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a mailing address, and that yeah. was about it. Yeah. So this does come up. It's kind of a weird thing, but it does happen. But right now in the OHSAA, there are 817 high schools and there are 873 middle schools. Between those numbers, we have 26 sanctioned sports, 13 for girls and 13 for boys. Huh. We have over 400,000 student athletes in grades seven through 12. Around 15,000 coaches, or I'm sorry, 15,000 officials and 70,000 coaches in the state. So I mean, it's a chunk of people mm-hmm. we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about in total. I'm sure now that's half a million people. Over half a million people yeah. from the state are involved in some way with high school athletics in Ohio. But I would also mention that with where we live and where I work and where you grow up, it's a very athletic-centered school. Yes, district. I mean. Most of the districts in this area are very athletic-centered, I would say. I was, about, These numbers I was just about surprising. to say that this is very stereotypical of rural America, but I also think it applies to more urban environments, too. Yeah. I, it's just like, it kind of depends, but there are a lot of high schools whose primary organizing principle exists around sports. Sure. Yeah. So, do you want to start with some good things that come from high school sports? Oh, I'd love to hear some good okay. things. You can learn to work with others, and you can learn how valuable being able to work as a team is. It does encourage you to work with a lot of different types of people, which is good. You need that in life. It's something to work for. Some of my students are very motivated to work hard in classes, so they're eligible for sports. Mm, so, I do see it as a good thing for teachers to have on their side. And because the relationships that students have with their coaches, athletes have with their coaches, is usually something that encourages them to do better as well. Oh, see, that's so, my, uh, when I talk about my experience, that's that's my criticism of school sports, sure. actually. Is the, I just had singularly bad coaching experiences yeah, in well, school sports, So, but I recognize the power of those yeah, kinds I mean, of relationships, for the me, potential. Yeah, for me, a lot of times, instead of handling a situation that might be something that I would get an administrator involved with, getting a coach of a sport involved to work with me and that student is almost always more beneficial because it's coming from a place of two people who are invested in you. Yeah. Your coach who sees you every day after school for how long, wants you to succeed, wants you to perform well, right? The relationship is very different from like 
from one between like a student and an administrator exactly for right 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 so i think that there are stakes for some students they're very motivated by that mm-hmm. for some students all i have to say is do i need to call coach so-and-so and they're like right as rain you know it works mm-hmm. the other thing that i do like and this this isn't exclusive to sports i would say because anyone who is involved in after school activities learns this skill as well this whole episode just happens to be about athletics but time management i think mm-hmm. it's I think it's really good to have to have students learn, okay, I've got this much time now and this much time later. What are my priorities? So I think those are some crucial skills, especially for teenagers. For sure. One thing I always appreciated about about my involvement with athletics growing up was that it gave me a chance to develop friendships with people that I wouldn't necessarily have otherwise run into yeah. in my day to day. I agree. Just because of my coursework schedule or whatever reason it was, I, I was building friendships with people who were sometimes very different from me and came from very different backgrounds and upbringings and all kinds of stuff. And you got to figure out how to become a well-oiled machine. And that involves a lot of social skills and sometimes sacrifices and a very interesting perspective on Mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And it is helpful. Mm -hmm. So I think that's good for some of my students as well. For sure. So I found a study by Mike Krings that was published in 2014 from the University of Kansas. Some of the most recent data on this is very hard to understand because of COVID. Yeah. So we are in a very weird, like, five years, I would say, because this data. So I had to go back a little bit to find something that sort of fit. Mm -hmm. Not because I was looking for it to only reflect this side, but just because more recent data doesn't really apply in the same way. Absolutely. So there was a study in 2014 done by the University of Kansas All that it did was analyze academic performance of athletes and non-athletes. Gotcha. And so their focus was to show that participation in interscholastic athletics actually did help or was often associated with better educational outcomes. So in this Krings article, they said that athletes had a higher percentage of days of school attended, graduation rates, and Kansas assessment scores, and they had lower dropout rates than non-athletes. The one thing that they really kept reiterating in this article, though, is that competing as an athlete does not make you smarter. But basically, the authors just argue that the lessons learned in athletics, combined with the knowledge that they must do well to participate, help improve their persistence, essentially. That makes sense. Which You become more disciplined. Well, and I've seen this firsthand. Mm -hmm. We have had students who we had feared would drop out at 18 who we were often thankful by what sports they played based on when their birthday was because we knew if it was the middle of a season and they turned 18, they probably wouldn't drop out. Makes sense. So I I definitely have seen that work. And then it's very easy to be like, we've made it this far. Why not just finish the year or whatever? But like I said, all of these athletes also have to be passing in Ohio five mm-hmm. credits. Mm-hmm. So they're automatically held to that standard. That's very interesting. Yeah. Those are some of the good things. Mm-hmm. It's not all great, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I, but I have seen that correlation exist For just sure. in my time teaching, and I'm sure you saw it when you were in school yep. as far as kids that would. And, you oh, know. I definitely had friends who, I wouldn't say only, but I, I guess I would say primarily motivated to achieve in academic work because of their eligibility status. Yeah. For sure. So I don't it's hate not to that. say that I think that that's necessarily like in and of itself a good thing because I don't, one would hope that you would have other reasons for wanting to do well in school. But if you don't, for whatever reason, then why not? Sport, sports could be that thing that just yeah. motivates you to, to yeah. be there and to show up and to try. I agree. I also think that there are probably plenty of things that I wouldn't work as hard at if I wasn't rewarded with something. And for some students, 
getting to play a sport is a reward. Yeah. You I know? mean, I think we talked about this with our health and fitness episode, but it's taken me a while to learn this, but I have learned that I am the sort of person who, when it comes to physical activity, I'm very motivated by external, not exactly rewards, but just feedback of some sort. Like you and I have talked about this, are kind of just even exercising now. Even if I just kind of create like a fake reason to be excited or goal or we've, we've signed up for the conqueror challenges which are basically just like online it's a company that will send you a medal if you reach a fitness goal and i'm just like i want the shiny thing mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm very motivated by an external factor no no matter how much intrinsic value that that factor might have uh-huh. so i, I can for totally sure. understand why students might function in the same way yeah yep so some of the some of the bad things that can come from high school drawbacks sports. yeah so obviously injuries that's a big one you don't have any experience with that do you yeah none it's been injured there, several times yeah there's a focus on athletics a lot of times for students when we know that the likelihood of, of a professional career is so slim so the amount of students that i've taught or that i know or whatever that have actually gone on to be a professional are so slim yeah. Which isn't to say you shouldn't do something because you're not going to be a professional at it. But the way that some of these athletes are forced to think about athletics, yeah. I would say. The time investment. Yes, can be dangerous. Right, right. Some students do exploit academic needs, like with cheating. I haven't seen a lot of that, but I'm sure it does happen. So like a sports team, they all pass around answers to a test or something. So yeah, or just, well. yeah, all Some, kinds just of... Something like that. Sure. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's the age-old thought of like jocks being jocks and they're better than everybody you know like the stereotypes that associate with athletics i would say that yeah that was very present in my high school but i think my high school at that time i maybe it's still true i don't know but like just the district in general there was a singular focus on athletics in the district in in a way that it was to the detriment of other things i guess i would say so and then the last one that i just kind of listed was just the way that minorities can be affected by this those that are in a lower socioeconomic status or mm-hmm. area obviously those who are more affluent and have more privilege are going to have more you know what i mean so it just kind of comes with it and you see this in terms of what i talked about earlier which is that when we started creating club teams they were in more affluent areas but also even still you see that in the difference of urban and city schools yeah. And their opportunities for athletics compared to rural other schools. So just just, in case anyone who's listening is not very familiar with this club sports, it's sort of like the private school equivalent of high school sports. So it's just like it's usually I mean, I don't know, maybe not even usually, but it's oftentimes in the summer or will be on the weekends or parallel They'll run in parallel to school sports programs, but they are pay-to-play sports program where students can develop skills to become better at whatever their chosen sport is, but in a way that puts students together from other... You know, you could have a bunch of different schools represented on the same club team, things like that. Club sports only allow so many students from each high school to play on them. Yeah. They are where, if you are going to play in college, it is where you will be seen because I played club students. volleyball for a while, and it was it was the competitive nature of it was just yeah because everyone was like a college bound athlete mm-hmm. like that was why they were there yeah that's and why I was you very much not well that was very much not why I was there which was all, another reason why I didn't particularly fit in into the club sports program because I just I wanted to play more volleyball but I didn't mm-hmm. it, it's just it's a weird it's a very weird but thing a hope of club sports and this is coming from a former coach. A hope of club sports is to make it so that athletes only play one sport year-round, and it's to get as much exposure as possible. 
Now, there are people who play it just because they love it and it's just a good workout and it's off season or whatever. And also, there are just some athletes who only play one sport and there's nothing wrong with that if that's just what you do. But my experience with club sports is that it's what you do as a way to be seen. Yeah. And have as much exposure as possible. There's a lot of scouting that happens. Because it's much easier for a ton of college coaches to all show up at the Columbus Convention Center in a weekend and see thousands of players than it is for them to find home matches or games or whatever that they can get to for 10 different players in yep. 10 yep. different cities. So so this is more like a like a D1, D2 pipeline kind of, or, or even pros. The more serious athletes, the more sp- serious sporting programs, they all kind of gravitate toward this club sports stuff now because mm-hmm. that, it, like you said, just even logistically – that's the manner in which college coaches recruit. That's the that's yeah. the mechanism that exists. Mm-hmm. And but personally, I think there's just a lot of dangers in club sports programs because you know school sports team the the star athlete might not be on the club sports team because they can't afford it because they're mm-hmm. a standout, but they, their parents just can't pay for the. It, it's an investment. It's a huge it investment of time and also of money to participate in club sports. So mm-hmm. it's not. It's it's kind of unfortunate that that things have trickled down to be the way that they are sure. with, with club sports and, and high school sports so, programs. But yeah. yeah. So going along with that, I found an article on the Atlantic called the case against high school sports by Amanda mm. Ripley. Okay. Cause this is from 2013. Most of this article deals with the investment of high school sports and the funding that's associated with it. And I think that one thing that this article doesn't really do is talk about the way that athletics are funded accurately While some of this is definitely true, I also want to say that most high schools have booster programs for athletics that help support the cost of things that athletics need. If anyone in another another country is listening, the United States is uniquely reliant upon booster programs, I guess I would say, because we chronically underfund public education. Maybe we should stop defunding education. But until we do, we have thousands and thousands of booster programs. Boosters don't just have to be for athletics. It can be for music and arts and sure. all kinds. Any any program can have a booster program. But a booster program is essentially parents organizing to raise money for their kids to participate right. in programs in and public it's schools. umbrella funds, yeah. basically. Yeah. So it can go towards jerseys. It can go towards um, registration for things. It, it can go towards Tournament cost fees, of, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. So that's one thing that this article doesn't really identify so i just want to like come up and be upfront about that because i think the article is doing good things and we're going to talk about it but it was just kind of missing that aspect that i thought was important okay so the first thing that ripley states in this is that and i've seen this is that students that choose to study abroad in the u.s are shocked by the role of sports in high schools (laughs) and i I have seen this i believe that I have seen this with so I'm many... I'm shocked by the role of sports in high schools. So. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I have seen this with so many of my foreign exchange students mm-hmm. who are just like, you all do this. You show up and they're like, um, what? Do we all go Friday night? Like, what do we do? Like, you know? that's what you do yeah. every Friday? You go to a football game? And so, especially like, I'm pretty close with a former French exchange student and I have a couple of former German exchange students. And so hearing them talk about sports at home... And like their home countries was always so interesting Mm -hmm. because athletics were a part of these 
students' lives, but it was not within the school that they happened. It was local groups and clubs and things like that. So, like, especially, like, in Europe, like, soccer clubs, right? That's where everybody plays. For sure, for sure. Those are not school-affiliated. They are in cities or whatever. Community. Yes, and so they're community-built. No, it doesn't mean that there aren't groups within schools who do, but the competitive nature of how American high schools compete is kind of unique to us. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. It's not surprising. This article stated that in eighth grade, Americans, American kids spend more than twice the time that Korean kids oh. spend playing sports. Korean kids. Is that and that said? was from a 2010 study that was pu- published in the Journal of Advanced Academics. Twice the time. Okay. So this is 12 years old. So take that for what you will. 12 they years were spending- old is when everything is like really scary and social stratification is starting to happen. And oof. okay. Very interesting. Right. Okay. So this is a quote. So, in countries with more holistic, less hard-driving education systems than Korea's, like Finland and Germany, many kids play club sports in their local towns outside of school. Most schools do not staff, manage, transport, ensure, or glorify sports teams. Wow. So, that's what I was talking about. Like, the funding that happens for booster organizations in the United States has to happen because schools can't afford for all of these things. Yeah. So, which is... Not the only reason why these European countries wouldn't pay for it, and Korea as well, I should say. Mm-hmm. But it's just a local thing that they do. Yeah. So it's just, it's so different. Wow. So one of the points of this article is that for many schools, the sports are so entrenched in this community and in the district that people don't even realize their actual cost. So there was an author of Educational Economics and... um Her name was Marguerite Rosa. So she analyzed the finances of a public high school in the Pacific Northwest, and she and her colleagues found that the school was spending 328 a student for math instruction and more than four times that for cheerleading. And she $328 for math instruction? Yes. Okay. But they her point was that it wasn't even the school known for prioritizing cheerleading. The district's strategic plan said that for the past three years, that math was a primary focus. Now, that's an upsetting number, but this is where my point of what boosters pay for comes into play. Because for people... $1,348 per cheerleader? As opposed to $328 for math instruction. Right. But I'm saying that that $1,348 is not just what the school is spending. Mm-hmm. That is what boosters and fundraising that's done by the athletes are helping to pay for, which doesn't make it right. But I don't want this to be a slam on the groups that work hard to fund themselves oh, to sure. take care of themselves. Sure, sure, sure. So should yeah. we be spending more than $320 for a student in math? Yes, of course. But that isn't to say, say that we shouldn't be investing in cheerleading or whatever. Sure. Stuff is expensive. That, yes. That's what I will say. Cheerleading, probably the primary cost there would be, like, custom uniforms, I would imagine, and then, like, tournament entry fees. Yeah, and if you compete, yeah, for sure. I mean, they still have to figure out how to feed these girls. They still have to figure out how to dress them. They have to get them there. They have insurance. You know, like, they have coaches that they pay. So you don't have all of those expenses related to math studies in public high schools but i think that the the sort of shock and awe is that the investment is yes the shock and awe factor here is that we're spending four times as much on a cheerleading program as we are on a math program right that seems a little distorted but also 
that has to do with the fact, like what we were talking about with club sports, there are whole industries created around these yes. things. Not to say that there aren't industries created around high school math education, for example, because there are like, you know, textbook publishers and mm-hmm. curriculum development and all kinds of money gets spent on math education in districts. But basically, when you get down to the raw numbers that yes. districts are spending, that's where it goes, including boosters, all of the stuff. Oof. Yeah. That's, a, that's a big oof. And okay. I just want I just want to say this because as a teacher in a district where our athletes rely heavily on funding outside um, funding yes like fundraising yes fundraising outside of the district budget the things that I have purchased to support not just athletes but musicians the ag students <laughs> I have come home with boxes of cheese I have come home with flats of strawberries I came home with a poinsettia once that I forgot I ordered I've come home with candles coffee today I came home with coffee once I have bought more clothes for my school than I can reasonably wear in a year. You're wearing a a school sponsored. I we did shirt the funding right for this shirt. Uh-huh. I just mm-hmm. want to say, mm-hmm. yeah, this is your I own. Have, You're dog fooding dog fooding it right now with this shirt. Yeah, I have bought today. I bought a cow pie bingo ticket. <laughs> which for those I don't of really want to know what that is. For those of you not in Ohio and Chelsea, <laughs> what this means is that at some point this summer. Our girls' soccer team will place a grid on a field. They will bring out a cow and where it poops and in what grid will decide if you've won. So if you're wondering where my last $20 in cash that I had on me at school today went. Did you say cow pie bingo? Yeah, it's called bingo. Cow pie bingo. So I got my little card and it has my spot number. And if a cow poopies in it, I win. Okay. Okay. That's actually incredible, though. Oh, it's so a great we're, fundraiser. We're from a part of the world where, like, my dad likes to tell the story. He he likes to tell the story about sticking firecrackers in in cow pies. The pie, the pie is a, is a pile of poop. That's what pie means for the for the non rural people mm-hmm. among us. Cow pies are just big turds. Yeah. So yeah, he used to like stick firecrackers in cow pies yeah. and run away and hope that he would get away. You, you know, you have to be sprightly. To, to get yeah. away from the pies before they explode. So that that's, well, that's, that's the kind of, that's the, well, no, no, no. I, I really wish that your organization had decided that the cow pie bingo would in, incorporate firecrackers is all I'm saying. I don't know if I would have given them $20. Oh, uh, I would have given them $50. True. $100. My point only to say cow pie bingo. What else have I purchased? I have entered so many lottery drawings. We get like coupon booklets. Oh my gosh. I just got a new coupon booklet. When we were in elementary school, we used to get like the guys who would come and they would like stick you in the the dollar bill tornado yeah. as a prize. But they would sell you like wrapping paper, really yeah, crappy chocolate. Yeah, but that was for like probably your PTO or something. No, no, no. But, like PTO, but there's not that much difference between like PTOs and booster organizations. Yeah, they're all selling the I, same catalog of marginally useful items. I was just trying to say these are the things that me as a teacher. Uh huh. Not as someone who lives in the community that I work in or that even has a child that attends there. And these are the things that I have purchased to help support. I have bought pies, cow pie bingos at the top. Oh my gosh, I rode a donkey one year to play basketball for a fundraiser. You rode a donkey? Donkey basketball. Okay. Yeah. I wish I would have seen that. I can't recommend it. It Is there a video? 
No, there are pictures though. Darn. Okay. We were helmets. I'll settle for pictures. Helmets. But <laughs> the things that our students have to do to earn money to do the things they want to do is truly awful. And I should not have to spend twenty dollars to watch a cow poop for a day, but I did it. <laughs> Anyways. Fair. Only fair. All of this is to say. I'm so disturbed. These okay. cheerleaders need their funding. Yeah. All they of do. them need they their do. funding and schools need to figure out a way to fund everything. In the way that it should be funded. No, when we're talking about student participation in athletics, a not insignificant portion of their time is spent on the logistics of fundraising for their own teams. So keep that. Yeah, that's just so the student athletes are participating in this cow pie mess that she's talking about. So that's all I want to say. Those were all groups just at the high school that I work in Mm -hmm. sold me. Now, some of those were non-athletic groups, but still. Back to this article. Another thing that we see happening is that American principals, unlike the vast majority of principals around the world, do make a lot of hiring decisions with sports teams in mind. This doesn't always go well because this means that you might hire a teacher who is also a coach over a teacher who might be more qualified to teach the position because what the school needs are coaches. Yeah, there are absolutely examples of this that I have seen happen where Everyone you hire has. a less qualified person because they happen to also be a coach and you just create a job for them. You give them a fluffy schedule and you mm-hmm. put the laurels at their feet because they are a coach. Yes, that def- definitely does happen. Sure. Not that I'm bitter. Couldn't tell. <laughs> I'm in no way bitter. Can you? I'm just I'm just a sweet, sweet Okay. Okay. Go ahead. So the one thing that this article does say is that sports generally do more good than harm for players themselves. So there was a 2010 study by Betsy Stevenson, who was at the University of Pennsylvania. And that study found that in a given state, the increase in the number of girls playing high school sports have historically generated higher college attendance and employment rates among women, Wow, which is kind of cool. And so there was another study done by Columbia's Margot Gardner, and they found that teenagers who participated in extracurriculars had higher college graduation and voting rates, even after controlling for ethnicity, parental education, and other factors. Extracurriculars could be any yeah, after school. It program. was just more support for how, but yes, these things that absolutely can be it can still lead to good things. Oh, I'm sure. So just to end on a bad note, <laughs> let's make it really I gotta sour. Keep, for I gotta the keep it humble. <laughs> I don't want to end on a little positive. End on a really so, dire note here. Yeah. Now remember, this is from 2013. So a lot has changed in education in the past nine years. But at this point. of South Korean students graduated from high school, while the United States, it was only 77%. Of that, only about 2% of them received athletic scholarships to college. This this study must have been hyper-focused on South Korea versus the United States. A lot of people in America study South Korea's educational system as a kind of contrasting, Mm -hmm. contrasting system. So we might have some room for improvement there. Is what I'm what I'm taking no, away I from this study. The sixteen percent different is pretty significant. So even in nine years with great change and only good things happening, not feeling super confident that we've grown that much, but I hope we have. We'll so, get there. Yeah. So my take, I'm a former three sport athlete and I really do feel like I learned similar lessons that I would probably have learned in just athletics by also being involved in other extracurriculars. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of what we think we're teaching and coaching kids and and being athletes can also be learned in lots of other ways. Sure. 
the physical aspect is obviously what I think is such an important mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. I would agree so with that. So for me, I was in marching band. It was really tough physical work. Oh, yeah. That's sweaty business. Often, <laughs> I would say marching band practice was more intense than some of my athletic practices. Even sweatier. <laughs> so if that's the argument, I think you can find other ways to be active. But obviously, being in marching band is not the same as being a soccer player. Like, I understand that as mm-hmm. a physical difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love playing sports. I still love sports. It's a huge part of who I am. It's something that I've grown to love because of my dad's love of sports. But when I was in middle school and high school, being an athlete wasn't my favorite part of my identity. Now, I've made some of my closest friends and kept some of my closest friends because we played sports together. But it wasn't something that I only wanted to be. I didn't want to just be an athlete. I wanted to do other things. And I enjoyed other things, probably more than sports. Probably the most important thing for me to mention is that I had two pretty significant knee injuries as part of playing sports. Yeah. I had back-to-back knee surgeries in my sophomore and junior year. Scars to prove it. Metal rods, the whole thing. Oof. Big, big scary things. Do I love... I still love sports. That's why I coach softball for years. It's something I feel strongly about. It's something that I think makes you better. I really do. Was it worth it to have played and pushed myself in the way that I did? Probably not. As someone who's now in their early 30s dealing with pretty severe arthritis for someone my age. eroding. Yeah, so I mean... I'm dealing with pretty severe arthritis for someone my age, and it's because of the injuries of sports. That doesn't mean that you can't get injured walking down the street. You know what I mean? Like, you can get injured in tons of ways. It just so happened that I hurt myself back-to-back within Mm -hmm. a year Mm -hmm. because of basketball and softball. That's just Mm -hmm. what happened to me. I knew I wasn't going to go to college to play sports. I was never that good at any of them to think about that. I could have gone probably D3 if I really wanted to, but I didn't even care that much about that. So now looking back, was it that important? Yeah, I mean, my summers were softball. You know, like, some of my greatest memories with my parents are from sports. Yeah. So I I love... The question of importance is a hard one because you can evaluate importance in terms of, well, did I get, you know, a sort of life advancement out of this experience? Maybe not, but, like, that's what I think about when I think about my playing softball as a kid. I can't say that playing softball in summer league as a kid contributed in some major way to where I am now. But also when I look back on my youth, you love it. Those are some of the most, those were the most fun and engaging and the friendships I formed, like just like softball tournaments in the summer were just something I lived for as a kid because it was so much fun. And it's just like, whether or not it had a lasting impact on my life, it was still very important to who I was at that time. So, Looking back on my injuries now, I don't know. It's easy to be on the other side of two knee injuries and be like, was it worth it? Mm-hmm. Then I would have said it was because I kept rehabbing and pushing myself so I could keep coming back. So I did care about it. As a former coach, I love high school athletics. I love the relationships that I've made with my former players. Some of my closest friends now are former athletes of mine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really special. And one of my closest friends in my life is someone that was my basketball coach when I was in middle school and I went to her wedding and we still talk to each other. And so that's been like 20 years I've known her. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have definitely been made better because of the connections I've made. So ultimately, do I think that sometimes there's too much focus put on them? Yes, of course. Do I think that they're, they're crucial to students? Yes, for some. I would hate to see a world without them, but I would love to find a way to make sure that the opportunities are there for everyone. 
I would love to see women have an equal playing field. And, you know, because I teach where I teach, athletics are a big part of the league that my school is in and where I grew up. So I think part of me is just built to care about high school athletics. And I think that there are probably plenty of people who went to other schools where it wasn't. But for us, especially in Ohio, like there's something better. I mean, you and I chase high school teams all the time and watch them in tournaments. I mean, we drove 12 hours in a day to watch a softball team compete at state. We're heavily invested and I do love it. But it's also, it's something that I look back and it's, it's not sour, but it's bittersweet for sure. Mm-hmm. But I obviously miss it or I wouldn't have been able to do all of this and still care, you for know, sure. but very thankful for Makes it. Sense. And I had some great coaches and I had some great friends and I had some bad coaches too. And as an educator, I've seen all of these things I've talked about. So for some, it's the best thing that can happen to them in their school day because it's all that some students have. And I think that's important. So what's your take? Ooh. You already uh, got into it a little bit. Yeah. But- I, I would say in general, I have a more fraught relationship with ath- athletics than you do, which is to each your own. But growing up, I was I was very into softball and I, I mostly played summer league. I, yeah, I didn't even play school school organized softball. I was only only playing in summer leagues and traveling leagues and stuff like that. But I was very into that and I played with a lot of my peers and we all attended the same school. So it was kind of kind of like being in school sports, but without the the OHSAA and all that organizing stuff. So softball was a very important part of summers up until I turned 18, really, honestly. And I, I loved it. I loved playing. Another thing was that, like, my dad was a coach growing up, so it was, like, an opportunity to hang out with my dad, which was very cool. Same. Yeah, it's just like, okay, I get to spend time with my dad, who's, you know, in business and who doesn't have a lot of spare time, but who is still investing time in this softball summer league. So mm. that was really fun for me. Almost because of that, I was kind of wary about joining a high school team because I didn't exactly want to lose that feeling of kind of like scrappy do-it-yourself summer league sure. sports. It was just a different feeling from the yeah. the high school league. So I never played softball in an organized way in school. I only played summer league. And then volleyball, I did play in school leagues in middle school and I played in, as a freshman in high school and I was pretty mediocre at volleyball. I was I was fairly confident in softball. I was a decent softball player, but I was a mediocre volleyball player. So those are my experiences. I played middle school organized sports and volleyball and a year in high school and that, that was it. So my experience is very different from yours in that respect. Part of the reason for all of that was because sports scheduling for practices and for games and tournaments and all that stuff always competed with my involvement in arts, music, all of that stuff. And I was just, you know, I was much more inclined to participate in music and theater and extracurriculars rather than sports. So much of my weekly schedule was dedicated to rehearsals for choir, for orchestra, for all of the (laughs) offshoot groups from all of those things. Really, the conflict around rehearsal schedule and practice schedule is why I dropped out of organized school sports, because I was tired of kind of trying to get my coaches and my orchestra teachers and choir teachers to agree on where I should go when. I'm just like, okay, you two need to fight about this. I don't really want to fight about this. You schedule practice for the same time, and I I don't know what to do. So you just tell me what I need to do, Mm -hmm. and I will show up, but... That becomes untenable after a while because you're managing hundreds of kids in any given program and you can't make exceptions for everyone all the time, which I totally understand. I I don't fault the coaches. I don't fault the orchestra, the choir teachers. I I just don't fault anyone for not being able to manage a very, very complex schedule for for dozens and hundreds of student athletes Mm -hmm. and student artists. So really what it 
took to kind of get me out of the school sports pipeline was all of those rehearsals and stuff. Cause I just, I valued that art stuff more than I did my athletic involvement at the time for whatever reason. I also didn't really like the social aspect, the kind of years between middle school and high school. That's when you start to find yourself socially. And in terms of finding myself, I was definitely bound to be a nerdy, artsy, music-y kid. Socially speaking, I just was not in the same cliques or social circles as all of the student-athletes, and that's just how it worked out. Like, all my friends were in orchestra and choir, and that's where I went, and so it made it very difficult to participate in sports because those people, for whatever reason at the time, were kind of nasty <laughs> and just not my friends. I just didn't gravitate toward that. It wasn't fun. There was nothing fun about it. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I love exercising. I love the sport of softball. I liked playing volleyball. All of that stuff was true, but I just, it wasn't enough for me to continue to invest the amount of time that was required. Sure. And, and the time commitment for these sports programs, I cannot underscore enough. It's an incredible time investment not just for students but for their parents who are picking them up from practices and games and all that stuff too like it's an incredible amount of time you have to invest in these things to really get out of them what you're putting into them and i just at a certain point i was like the calculus doesn't work out for whatever reason sure. um i would have loved to have been more involved in school sports honestly part of me kind of regrets not participating in sports more seriously in high school but i also just realized that there's no way it could have worked and i gotta say that when I went to college, actually, I rediscovered an interest in school sports because my college had a really, really serious intramural program. And that's partly because it was so weird and secluded in, in a lot of ways. But we took intramural sports very seriously at the college and we only competed, competed intercollegiately in about four, four, I think it was four sports at the time. But there were only four intercollegiate programs at my college and the rest of it was intramural. And that doesn't mean it was taken less seriously <laughs> because our intramural program was very, very serious. And it also gave me an opportunity to participate in sports that I never would have tried or been interested in otherwise. I was on like the sailing team. I did boxing for a while, all of this stuff in college because it wasn't about winning. That, that was the thing that was kind of the differentiating factor for me is that I kind of missed the for the love of the game aspect of school sports in high school and in college, I got to rediscover that because of our weird, quirky approach to, sure. to sports. Everyone is so excited to get new students involved in the athletics programs at my college because everybody realized that like your coach isn't going to just scream at you and punish you if you don't win. It's about showing up and learning something new. And even yeah. if you're terrible at it, you're going to get playtime because that's the important thing. And I hate to be like participation. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about, about a coach right now, so it's kind yeah, of personal. It just for me and I get. I get that not everyone is built this way, but for me, it was a game changer in terms of thinking about my own participation in sports. I'm like, well, okay, I don't have to be the world crushingly best at this. No, but you I still got to win. What no, are you no, doing? No, no, Well, I mean, like, I'm it's fun to win. That's the I'm fun thing. That's a, it's, it's definitely fun to be competitive and to win, but it's not necessarily, for me, it's not enough to be my driving factor for involvement. Sure. So the fact that I got to participate with friends and peers and have fun, even though I wasn't an expert in whatever sport, was a big differentiating factor for me. So yeah. I think my take is that, in general, K-12 sports programs might see an even higher participation rate if they put more of an emphasis on intramural programs rather than extramural ones, I guess. 
schools competing against other schools. Mm-hmm. If, if there weren't such an emphasis on winning and crushing and competitiveness, you might bring in a lot more people into your sports programs is what I would say. I, I share the same, the same love for sure of the summer program, like the softball stuff you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Cause my dad was also my coach. So those will always be very special things yeah. for me to remember. I mean, my dad worked a lot. That was like the time that we had to connect. So yeah. it's yeah. sacred to me almost. Yeah, it would be. I was really fortunate in my high school that my directors and my coaches and things shared very well. So I was very lucky to have that because the schedule, they they did work with each other and they would talk with each other to figure out where I needed to be when. Mine did the best they could, but it was just impossible sometimes. And it was through no fault of anybody's, honestly. It was just like, yeah. this is just very difficult. Like, yeah, I just mean mine yeah. made it so that it was possible for me to keep doing it all. Yeah, And good. so I was I was always really thankful for that because I had, I had great support. And the last thing I was going to mention, I think it's hard because... It's hard for me to speak about high school sports this way because I'm so competitive. I yell at TVs. <laughs> I anything that could I could win, I will win. I will want to win. Is what w- I should watching say. Kate watching Kate watch sports. Yeah, is an event in and of itself I, because she goes. She she viscerally experiences all of the it's the ups yes. and downs and triumphs and tragedies. Well, I'm gonna play my dad because I think that's how he does it. But also, it was just always, like, my parents didn't expect me to win, but man, how much better was it when you did? And so, I was also really fortunate. I grew up playing on really, really good softball teams. I grew up in a high school that built softball teams. Like, when I became a coach, I realized that it, it really isn't about winning. You can learn a lot of lessons in a lot of ways, but... It's way better to learn a lesson and win. I I want to think that I'm a person who's in it for the love of the game because otherwise I wouldn't have been there, but I do love to win. It's a little bit of both for me. I'm still that way. I just love, I love sports. So it's, but they're only fun when you win, right? Not quite. They're way more fun when you win. It's true. And I I just feel like you can learn just as much by winning as by losing. (laughs) I think that's what I want to say. Maybe more when you lose. But anyways... (laughs) My point is that we can always be learning. It's just better if we're winning. That's my story. Okay, coach. I know. See? And I... You're wearing I, I your coach, coach britches. I know. And I always told those girls, you know, we're going to play as hard as we can. But in the back of my head, I was like, but please win. But please win? <laughs> no. I mean, you, you can't win them all. So that's okay. Final thoughts on school sports programs? I think that was it. One thing I wanted to mention that comes as a byproduct of sports, and this was recently in the news, and this young man was on the Today Show. Mm. So there was a former Ohio State football player, his name's Harry Miller, and he just announced that he was retiring from football because of mental health concerns. So he's retiring as a college athlete. Got it. So before this past season, uh, this player, Harry Miller, approached Ohio State coach Ryan Day saying he had plans to kill himself. And Coach Day immediately supplied him with support and access to mental health experts. So he he shares in this interview that he'd had anxiety and depression his whole life, but obviously trying to perform at the level of Ohio State and just already having dealt and suffered, right, from these two things. Ohio State football is is, uh, very, very important just culturally. School sports teams at the college level, like Ohio State football is like way way up there in terms yeah. of how seriously student athletes might take themselves just well, in case you're a listener who's not in ohio ohio well, state football if you is a are in ohio deal. and you don't know who Ohio state football is then turn off my podcast well uh, yeah. 
I mean, I'm just kidding. Fair, fair. Go Bucks. But I suppose if you don't know anything about college football and you found this podcast, what I would say is that the Big Ten, which is what Ohio State is part of in this league, is a very intense football league in yeah. um, college sports. Yeah. And Ohio State is a pipeline of NFL players. So the the people who play at Ohio State have a very, very strong chance of someday being in the NFL and are considered to be some of the best college athletes in the United States. So this young man announced that he was retiring after or well, during college football because of the concerns of his own mental health. I think it's really beautiful that he did that. I think it's great that Coach Ryan Day at Ohio State and the rest of them supported him and got him the access that he needed. I love that he is speaking out and making a point to share this story. And I think that where it brings up the question, is the stress worth it? Yeah. Is the stress of putting yourself through something... And he never said that football was what caused it, because he said when he was very young, he had it. Sure. But if something that you're doing is putting so much stress on you, you and I mean that it's preventing you from getting help or something yeah. like that, is that worth it? Um, this probably isn't a one-size-fits-all answer either, because what might be a tolerable amount of stress versus reward for exactly. one, one student athlete might be very different from right. another one. Like I might benefit from that kind of stress mentally. Exactly. Whereas, and I mean, I don't, I don't personally, <laughs> what I'm saying, like I don't, you I might, crumble. I crumble. let's just say, I fall apart. say you might not crumble under that stress. Yeah. You probably wouldn't, but I probably would. Yeah. So well, very and different. I th- and I think his conversation is really important, not only because we should be willing to have these conversations regardless of the circumstances surrounding your mental health concerns, but also because I have seen students crack because of the pressure of performing a certain way. Mm-hmm. And those are the moments that I'm like, this sport, this event, this whatever has caused you this much built up anxiety, depression, whatever yeah. it is, the stress of it. To be fair, this can happen in, in arts and music too, because I used to collapse every single year under the pressure of solo and ensemble performances. So this is not just <laughs> the right. domain of sports. The the amount of pressure that is being discussed in terms of like just high school participation in any kind of program, it can, it can apply to any program yeah. is all I would say, I guess. I just worry about the amount of pressure that we're especially can place on high school athletes considering we know the likelihood of a professional career and not to say that you only play because you're going to play in the pros obviously because that's not the case for what 98 percent of people or something but his his story just makes you wonder where do you draw the line of something you love of something that you know whatever that might be and if it's not helping you or benefiting you then is your love of it worth it for sure And so I was just, I was really pleased to hear from him himself talking about his experience. I was happy that he felt supported at Ohio State, that they took it seriously enough to get him the help and support that he needed. And I'm glad that he's been given a platform to share that because I think a lot of, in this case, you know, in the case of this episode, student athletes feel that pressure Mm -hmm. and not without reason or, you know, not because they don't want to do well or something, but because they've been built made to feel that they have to succeed. Yep. And there's only one way out. Yep. So if you haven't heard of Harry Miller, I will include his interview on the Today Show and the show notes. Really incredible young man. You can also hear from his other interviews with his mom, which is just incredible. So yeah, that's just kind of his story. And like I said, his depression and anxiety wasn't rooted in football by any means, but 
uh, just kind of came out by way of him being a college football player at a very successful, you know what I mean, university. Mm-hmm. So cool. Anything else? No, I think that about wraps it up. I just the pressure associated with high school sports in my district is one of the reasons why I didn't play a lot of school sports, especially as a high schooler. Sure. I, I wanted to keep it to summer league because. I mean, I even remember saying this to myself at the time. Like, I'm like, no, I want to have fun playing sports. Not that I couldn't, you know, not that you can't this have really fun. It's really personal. It really is. I, I, I remember having this conversation with my parents about my participation in school sports at the time. I was like, no, I actually want to have fun playing softball. So I don't want to play high school softball mm-hmm. because I just knew the girls who were involved in that program at the time. And I was just like, I'm not that way whatever that way is i'm not that way it's not that i don't love the sport it's not that i don't love my teammates it's just that it's a different kind of dedication to the activity and i just i knew i didn't want to do it that way at the time so it can it can be very hard on sure young athletes yeah. so but it's also rewarding in its own ways it can so, be yeah. the best thing for them too okay want to move on to uh fill in the blank yeah would you like to uh tackle last week's i'll let you Oh, me? This is okay. more your speed. Is it? Really? Okay. All right. I'll go with it. It's your favorite Smithsonian. <laughs> it's true. It is my favorite Smithsonian. Okay. In 1995, the National Air and Space Museum dealt with controversy surrounding the display of the superfortress used by the U.S. to drop the first atomic bomb in World War II. Multiple groups believe the exhibit put forward only one side of the debate concerning the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What was the name of that historic Boeing B-29? And that was the Enola Gay. Nice show. Yeah. Good work. All right. This week's question. I just kept with the theme. Of course. So this episode's question is LeBron James graduated from what famous private Akron, Ohio high school in 2003? Located not too far from here in Akron. It's true. Akron. So write in if you got the answer. Hello at 16 to 1.com. Hopefully we'll get your email. We we had another hacking incident. We keep talking about this on the pod because this is a constant problem, but the old web host we used, we got hacked a whole bunch. So we've moved to a new web host. Yeah. 16 to 1 is now located at a different web hosting company. But you'll so, still find us. Everywhere. Yeah, you'll still be able to find us and email us at hello at 16 to 1.com, all spelled out. And we will, uh, if you get the right answer to the, the fill in the blank question, we'll send you a sticker. Yeah, let's do it. So go ahead and write in and we'll, uh, we'll say hi. Okay. Shall we move on to what you learned yeah. this week? I have an Audible subscription. So every mm-hmm. month I get a... My little token thing, my credit. Credits for audiobooks. Yeah. Yeah. To buy an audiobook. And a couple of weeks ago, Audible had a two for one deal. Ooh. So I got four bucks for two. Audiobooks are expensive, by the way. Well, that's why I only buy them with my Audible credits because yeah. they're way cheaper that way. Yeah. But I got what turned out to be the second book. Oops. You thought it was. I didn't know. Number one, but it was number but two. But the kicker is that I have book one on my shelf. Oh, okay. I'm so mad. Okay. So anyways, I got Julie Andrews' book. It's called Homework. So it's Julie Andrews and her daughter, and it is book two. <laughs> it's a memoir, and it is about her years in show business. Yeah. And she reads it, and it is just like your grandmother is hugging you for 10 hours. Oh, yeah. It's delightful. It is sweet and just beautifully done, mm-hmm. and I don't want it to end... And I have two hours left and I'm like dragging it out. I have enjoyed listening to Julie Andrews tell stories. She's delightful. In my head, and this is just our age as well, since we're in our early 30s, we didn't know Julie Andrews 
in her prime. Mm-hmm. Like we only got her by way of growing up watching Mary post, Poppins. Uh, post vocal box surgery. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So we just know her as Mary Poppins and, you know, from Sound of Music. And, and Princess Stars. Well, right. But I was saying, like, as a child, our only exposure uh-huh. was as this prim and proper English woman yes. who takes care of children. Mm-hmm. And so hearing her tell her story about her life that is nothing like what you would think Julie Andrews would have come from. It is just beautiful. I just, I've laughed out loud. I've like teared up. It is She's so hilarious. Sweet. She, she's as funny as you would imagine she could be. And uh, she cusses. Yeah, she that's the thing. Hearing she, Julie Andrews curse words cuss. coming from Julie Andrews' mouth. Oh, it's a wild Just ride. Hearing her cusses, I can't even think of anything better. Honestly, it's, it's really funny because she tells stories about how her kids chastise her for the amount of cursing that yeah. she does, and she's like, "Oh, I didn't even realize I was cursing so much." Yeah. And they're like, "Yeah, Just, you need a swear jar." You can't even imagine. Oh, so yeah, funny. she lost a bet. Yeah, she lost. She made a kind of a, a kind of treaty with her kids at one point, and they were like, "Okay, well, if you do your chores and blah 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 and behave well, you'll get this." And they're like, "Okay," and, and she's like, "But if you behave badly, this will happen." And they're like, "Okay, well, what happens when you curse though?" And she's like, "Oh, I didn't really realize I was cursing all that much." Yeah. And they're like, "Yeah, well, you are, mother." Yeah. It's, it's just great. Been, it's been so great to listen to her yeah. and her talk about her own issues with mental health and things like that. And you look at Julie Andrews, and she has somehow ageless and perfect and you just think there's no way that this woman could have ever had a bad day in her life it's true and uh it's just so great and like you said a princess diaries is one of our favorite <laughs> movies of all time and she plays the incredible grandma on that so it is clarice rinaldi it is just magic and mm-hmm. it has brought me such joy what about you what you got this week, oh, I, this episode? As I've mentioned before on this podcast, one of my favorite podcasts of all time is 99% Invisible, which is hosted by Roman Mars, and it's a podcast about design, broadly speaking, but kind of like our podcast, they cover all sorts of things in service of conversations around design, and the most recent episode of 99PI was it's, it's called Gridlock, and it was about the sweeping power outages in Texas in 2021 because of that huge ice storm, and Texas, as it turns out, is on its own isolated power grid. It's the only state in the lower 48 that has its own power grid that doesn't connect to the rest of the contiguous 48 states. At the time, because of the fact that those power plants in Texas are not generally winterized, and the fact that there was a huge winter storm with a lot of ice and a lot of below freezing temperatures, Texas just had a huge, huge mess. Yeah. <laughs> An unprecedented, Which was well-documented. Yes. A well-documented, unprecedented, huge mess. Climate change is going to cause even more of these messes as time goes on, so we all better prepare. But this episode of 99PI, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll link to it. I just learned all about the history of how that particular public utility, really, in Texas became the way it is now. The regulations, or lack thereof, the push for deregulation in the 80s, how it led to the weird system. Basically, what happens is Texas is there. They're incentivized to provide... The power plants are incentivized to provide the least amount of electricity that they can on any given day. And as you can imagine... This is so backwards. A scarcity economy like that functioning in a situation where many power plants can't operate because they're not winterized led to this giant mess. I also learned that the electricity grid operates on a frequency of 60 hertz, which was 
fascinating to learn. Basically, like, when power plants shut off, the frequency starts to decrease. And if you get below, like, I think it was like 59.4 or something like that hertz, you start to fry the physical plants that provide power to consumers everywhere. So, like, once you drop below that expected frequency for a certain amount of time, your physical infrastructure will just start to fall apart. burn up and cripple and fall apart. And that was what was happening in Texas. And the other thing that I learned that made me extremely irritated was that the Public Utilities Commission in Texas at the time was like, oh, well, of course, because we operate under a capitalistic system, the only lever that we know how to pull is the scarcity price lever. So all these power plants in Texas shut down because they could not physically produce power because either their generators were frozen or the natural gas supplies to their plants were cut off. One of the two of those things happened. So many messes. The commission just was like, oh, well, you know what? We always do when there's a lot of demand and not very much supply. We just raise prices. So they rose, they, they raised the prices to the absolute maximum. But the problem really wasn't a supply and demand problem per se. It was the fact that the power plants could not produce power because of their physical plants. So they just passed off this insane supply-demand problem to consumers for no real reason whatsoever because there's no amount of price raising that would have fixed the supply-demand problem. So they skyrocketed the prices. The power supply still did not go up. The demand was still incredibly high. And it was just it was just a huge mess mm-hmm. for like a week. And consumers were really the ones who ended up footing the bill for this really weird power situation in, in Texas. And 99PI had that one episode, like I said, Gridlock. There's another one called, entire podcast called The Disconnect. And it was what 99PI was kind of, they were talking to the reporters who did this other podcast series called The Disconnect about this problem in Texas. So really worthwhile, just fascinating. It was mind blowing. We were driving back from DC and that was what I was listening to. Yeah. And it was just, it was totally worth the investment and just to learn how it functions there, how we have not put up safeguards for this kind of once in a lifetime. <laughs> Truly. Event. Well, it's not, unfortunately, it's not once in a lifetime. But anymore. yeah, they're becoming way more frequent than once in a lifetime because of climate change. So we need to start thinking about how to yeah. deal with these sorts of events in America and with utilities that we count on. And it was just, it was fascinating. One more quick note. The other thing I learned this week is that if you use Chrome browser, which a significant portion of people do, it's a whole lot in terms of market share, uh, update your Chrome browsers this week. There's a major security vulnerability discovered, and you should update if you use Chrome. Yeah. Just do it. I do want to say we were listening to Roman Mars on the way home from D.C., Mm -hmm. and I think his voice is what put me to sleep for so long. You really like his voice. I love his voice. Roman, if you're listening... Big fan. Reach out to Kate. She wants to have just like I thousands of hours of you, your voice. No, you could just, talk about anything, really. Just do like a 30 minute wind down before sleep. A sleepy time podcast. Yeah, you could, I would you could love make that. millions. I really think that's why I kept falling back asleep because I would wake up and I would hear Roman Mars and I was just like, oh, and I was out again. All right. Well, 99PI so for bedtime. Roman, if you want to not collaborate. Uh, can I just say, I'm not put to sleep by the podcast. It's one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. Oh, it's so good. I just love his voice so much that I'm just like, I just lay there and I close my eyes and then I'm asleep. Yeah, so it's very soothing. Thanks for that. Fun episode. Yeah, good times. We're on pretty opposite ends of this. Of school sports? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's all. Okay. We will see you in two weeks. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll talk to you then. Okay, bye. Bye.
supporting 16 to 1. We're trying to grow our audience, so please check us out at 16to1.com, all spelled out, and tell your friends about the show. On our website, you can find links to follow us on social media, an archive of all our old episodes, and a contact form where you can get in touch. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. Oh, I just got it. I tried to warn you. Ah! Stella! (laughs) I tried to warn you. I gave you the warning.